what is a socially responsible organization, and how do you create one? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. It's all about crisis management. That's the contention of Dr. Ian Mitroff, a senior research affiliate at the Center for Catastrophic Risk Management at the University of California, Berkeley. Author of the book, The Socially Responsible Organization, and one of the founders of the modern field of crisis management, Mitroff says a socially responsible organization is one in which all individuals are accountable as global citizens and are prepared for any event. But how do we get there? How do we fight misinformation and disinformation when it comes to crises such as the COVID-19 pandemic? Why is organizational culture so important? And why does he say that the current state of affairs is a wicked mess? Here's my conversation with Ian Mitra. Dr. Ian Mitroff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. You are the author of a new book called The Socially Responsible Organization, Lessons from COVID. Let's start with the title. How do you define a socially responsible organization? Well, I I define a socially responsible organization as one that practices crisis management and it's deeply woven into its structure. So it's thinking the unthinkable, not just thinking how something won't go wrong, for example, in technology. What are the unintended consequences of technology? What can we do to safeguard our users? How can we get out in front that how our technology will be abused and misused? And so it comes down to, again, thinking the unthinkable and doing everything in our power to ensure the health, the welfare, and the safety of our users and consumers. Interesting. You're saying it's not just a kind of an airy commitment to these principles. It's also having a very structured process in place in order to make sure that well, they realize Well, it's deeply the in the culture of the organization. Yeah, that yeah. crisis management is everybody's business. So mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that there's constant state of panic, but there's a crisis management team where they constantly review worst-case scenarios, look for the early warning signs that something has happened either to them or to a partner in your business, and try to take uh, preemptive actions to prevent the worst from happening. Okay, so before we drill down into some of the details of how that could be done, let me ask you about the subtitle of the book, and that is Lessons from COVID. What did COVID-19 teach us about the field of crisis management that maybe we didn't know before? With COVID-19, one of the things that prompted the whole book is that I woke up one day and I just started compiling all of the fallacious arguments that I heard why people didn't think they needed to take the vaccine. And it happened because of my background in philosophy. I only have a PhD in engineering, but a minor in the philosophy of science. And as I began to collate these arguments, I began to see the pattern. And here's the thing, that epidemiologists have been warning for years and doing simulations 
of pandemics. But no one did a simulation of all the fallacious arguments that would prevent people from getting vaccinated and help stop the spread of the disease, even though those kind of arguments appear in previous crises like HIV and AIDS, that kind of thing. Because the thing is, when you do a simulation, they only did a simulation from an epidemiological standpoint. They didn't bring in other social scientists who would say, economists, what would happen to the economy, how this thing would just reverberate throughout our whole society, infect system after system. And so the point is, we really failed to learn from previous crises. Because one of the things that also has happened, that in New York City, they were able to combat some disinformation. And as a result, they upped the vaccination rate uh, for getting shots against COVID. So these things are effective if you act in time. Wow, that is fascinating because that is in contradiction to the overly optimistic assumption that when people are confronted with a common enemy, in this case, COVID-19, they just all band together and cooperate like aliens attacking from outer space. And, and of course, you're saying that that is definitely not the case and we need simulations that definitely show otherwise, right? Well, that's right. I mean, in, in many cases, the, the thing that's fallacious is that sometimes happens in the past, mainly around so-called natural disasters, of which they're really not. They're all man-made at some point. But when you read something like this, and again, AIDS and HIV, we should have learned from them. People, the fear is literally a pandemic, a pandemic onto a pandemic. And people, they want to zone out, literally. They want, they enter, denial becomes big time. And that's what a lot of the fallacious arguments for people not wanting to get vaccinated are, not getting wanted to get vaccinated. They engage in denial. It won't happen to me. It's not real. One of the worst arguments that I've heard is that the pandemic was deliberately started by the government so they could place microchips in the vaccine so the mm. government could thereby track our every whereabout. Talk about a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. So instead of banding together, instead it produced conspiracy theories and then polarization and uh, the divisiveness we have. This became another source of the great divisiveness that is just wrecking us apart. Yeah. And and you say, of course, that this is not unusual in past types of crises. We've had this sort of attitude, but perhaps it's been it's just been compounded by the Internet now. We didn't have that in years past. And now that just weaponizes and magnifies the disinformation and makes it even more serious. Correct. Well, I make it even more pronounced. I really put a lot of the blame on social media and mm. Facebook in particular, because if we had deliberately sat down to invent a mechanism for spreading disinformation, we couldn't have done a better job. <laughs> and they can talk about all the people they have trying to monitor this, but the trouble, I mean, it's been used to shame young girls relentlessly about their looks and their weight and that kind of thing. In fact, Facebook even has an algorithm, as we know, that deliberately hikes and feeds on your prejudices, and then feeds you stuff which just reinforces it. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that to me is the epitome of this socially irresponsible organization. 
Mm-hmm. I couldn't pick a better example or a worse example. Well, now tell me how so you not bring... Not just the Internet. Mm-hmm. Not just the Internet, but the individual companies that are participating in it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Tell me how you incorporate into your thinking about crisis management the use of the Myers-Briggs personality typology, the use of the Thomas Kilman conflict framework. Let's start with Myers-Briggs with the four types okay, of personalities uh, within uh, that. I've been a student of the uh, Myers-Briggs for years. In fact, when I first started as a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and I worked with my friend Ralph Kilman. And let me tell you the exercise that we did that brought it all to light. We were charged with giving a lecture on organizations to a group of teachers, and we didn't want to just give a lecture and bore them. So since Ralph and I both knew the Myers-Briggs, we said, why don't we administer a short form of the Myers-Briggs and put all the same personality types in the same group and then give them an exercise or bring out the differences? Mm-hmm. So the exercise we used that we didn't know it would work, but it worked. One, what is your ideal organization? And the ideal organization of sensing thinking types, people have a narrow focus, sure, was bureaucracy. If bureaucracy had never been invented, they would recreate it because there's complete certainty. Everybody knows exactly what they're going to do, the rewards and punishment. The ideal organization of NTs, intuitive thinking, see the big picture. It's called a matrix organization. No fixed organization. People come and go depending upon the problem assigned to different groups. The ideal organization to a feeling time is no organization. People just show up depending on how they feel and who they like that day they get together. And the ideal organization sensing feeling is a small, tight-fit family. Everybody knows one another, goes to their wedding funerals and the like. Mm-hmm. Now, Applying it to crisis management, each of the Myers-Briggs type not only sees different types of crises, but they respond differently. So their crises, ST, sensing thinking, are mainly economic crises that they can measure with hard numbers. The crises of intuitive thinking types are things that attack the whole system, like the economy as a whole. And the crises of intuitive feeling are things which attack the well-being of a community as a whole. And the crises of sensing feeling are things that affect me, my close friends, my family. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is that crises cut across all of those. So what you have to do is to learn how to span your particular personality type. And that's where the exercises that we have conducted help people do to see and understand how the different types think and hopefully to be more comfortable with incorporating different ways of thinking about the world than what normally does. Well, you know that a number of companies use Myers-Briggs in the hiring process. Right, I'm wondering right. to what extent that might be important to build an organization that's balanced in terms of its Myers-Briggs types from the moment that you hire people, should organizations be thinking about it that early? Absolutely, because most organizations, part of the culture, which I work with my friend Ralph Kilman, is that they tend to hire that what looks like them, that they're comfortable with. 
So they tend to exclude, again, those personality types with which they're most uncomfortable. So SDs are most uncomfortable with intuitive feeling. And sensitive feelings are both uncomfortable with intuitive thinking. And yet, they need one another to really get a robust picture of the world. Yeah. One of the things I've written about that I've talked about and studied a lot is the concept of wicked messes. A mess is a whole system of problems that are so interconnected, you can't take any of the individual problems and study it on its own without distorting the problem and the mess. A wicked problem is a problem to which none of the disciplines, professions, has the final say on its definition. We are in the world of wicked messes. Everything that faces. And to do that, you need a balance of all the different personality types looking at it from multiple perspectives. You not only need inner, but transdisciplinary inquiry. Do you think that the sum of employees or people who make up an organization, in effect, create an organization that itself has a personality, a larger Absolutely. personality based on the people who make it up? Absolutely. Again, going back to my friend Ralph Kilman, he has studied, most of all, culture of organization. And in his words, up to 80% of the behavior, if not more, of an organization can be traced back to the culture. Namely, if you want to get along and not be ejected, here's the way you have to think, dress, and behave, how you talk to subordinates, how you talk to superiors. So it's groupthink in many ways. And so to break out of it is very hard. For example, one of the biggest issues on the agenda, right, is the culture of policing. How do we change the culture of policing? so that it's more receptive to other points of view and how it treats different people that are different from those who are currently cops. And when Ralph, to change the culture of the organization, you have to outline, say, here's what we want to be, here's how we currently are, how do we close the gap? And that is very hard, but it can mm-hmm. be done. But it's you hard. Do. You do believe it can be done. You believe that the wicked mess can be untangled? Yes, I do believe it can be done. I'm hopeful. Is it difficult? Can all organizations do it? No. But can organizations do it? Yes, I do have faith and hope in the the human condition that we can do it. It's Mm. not easy. But organizations, as they get bigger, maybe it becomes more difficult because they acquire, like I was, you, know, you were saying before, an overall personality. You get this idea of organizations and institutions who are basically self-protective at a certain point to the exclusion Absolutely. of considerations yeah. for any individual. People become trapped and the organization becomes more important than the people who make it up. Just the perpetuation well, of the mean, institution. The thing about culture, the thing about culture is people often go along with behavior that goes against their deepest moral uh, grain because mm-hmm. it's the thing, it's the way the organization behaves. Talk about a deep inner moral conflict. And so, yeah, that's the conflict that a lot of people, that in order to be part of it, I have to go, because if I don't do it, they won't be there to back me up when I need their help. So I have to back them up. And aren't we conformists by nature? Yeah, of course we are, because we're afraid of being on the outside 
mm-hmm. of the tribe and nobody there to protect it. But then that's a lot. That's a lot like self-reflection, awareness, and saying, okay, we really, really want to be protected in today's world of wicked messes. Then we have to learn to think. We have to bring in points of view that challenge us, really challenge how we look at the world. And that's uncomfortable for most people and most organizations. One of the things I've done in my work as crisis management is to help people confront their dark side. And it ain't easy by any means. That's how you really earn your money as a consultant, by telling people what they don't want to hear. And you have to do it very judiciously. I've been fired more often than not for feeding (laughs) back to people what they don't want to hear. That term crisis management seems by implication to mean how you manage a crisis that's already happened. Would you argue that crisis management is more than that, that it's also about preparing for crises and mitigating before before they even come down the pike? Absolutely. There's a before, during, and after. Mm-hmm. Most people just do the during, which is reactive. The before is proactive. And the before is looking at, there's a range of different types of crises, and say, okay, what's the worst can happen? Don't discount like product tampering. Once years ago, he's working with an oil company. He said, oh, we don't have product. And he said, wait a second. You have consumer stores along with your gas station. Oh, yeah. Well, you sell consumer product. Then the light went on. So the thing is to see what is the form that a particular type can happen. And then connect the dots. Because no crisis ever, a single crisis, becomes a chain. And mm-hmm. one sets off another. So setting the before, looking at worst-case scenarios, what are the early warning signals that it might be happening, and then saying, do we have a crisis? How do we prepare people to think proactively? The during is enacting all the stuff you prepared before. You can't do it during the heat. And the after is saying, what do we do right? What do we do wrong? What are the lessons we need to learn? And what will ensure that we will be better in the future? How do you respond to the notion that if we want an organization to behave morally, ethically, and socially responsibly, regulate it? Regulations are the answer. What do you say to that? I do believe that regulations are necessary, but they won't do the whole job with the culture. I do believe regulations are needed Mm -hmm. to set the standard and the ground rules. I do believe in that, particularly with tech companies. But regulations will not change the culture. So you need both. Again, it's like the different quadrants of the Myers-Briggs. Regulations are different in each of the quadrants of the Myers-Briggs. And so regulations are absolutely necessary. Again, they don't fill out the whole picture. Because I don't believe in self-regulation. Self-regulation doesn't always work. If ever. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, we've certainly ever. seen enough examples yeah. of it not working to get the feeling well, that it is. That's it, right. Well, look at Facebook. That's probably the primary example, social yeah. media. And by the way, I say it as somebody with a PhD in engineering. It's not that I don't like technology. I do. But technologists now need a broader education than they were given. They need to come up to date with human organizations and human behavior. Mm-hmm. Everything just cannot be reduced to equations and algorithms. No way. What is the role of the investor in guiding an organization to become 
ethical, to become socially responsible. An investor just simply wants that uh, shareholder, wants the business to yield uh, profits all the time. Should investors be held to account as well? Yeah. No, they should talk about the board of directors. The Mm -hmm. board of directors have to be the greater board of conscience of an organization, not look after the financial well-being, of course, but the safety, the health, the well-being of the people in the organization and the larger communities in which an organization operates. So, for example, pollution and global warming and all the rest of that. So the point is the game has really expanded in so many ways because of the complexity of the world in which we now live and operate. It's not the same world where, oh, the environment was separate, oh, we don't have to worry about that. Oh, yes, you do. Uh Everything is interconnected. If I had to reduce it down to one word, I would say we are more interconnected and yet disconnected from one another than ever before. Theory and reality. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I, I guess you might argue, too, that we as consumers cannot be let off the hook. We need to play our part in holding the, their feet to the fire, these organizations, by shopping or buying from those organizations that we feel adhere to these principles and not using the Absolutely. ones who don't. Absolutely. Let's put it this way. The multitude of stakeholders who have a stake in an organization who affect and are affected by an organization all have to be held to account. It's not just the people within, but the people without, mainly mm-hmm. expressing the same I don't want to shop here. I don't want to buy your products, you know, that you're not upholding your bargain. So I agree with you. There's enough blame or fault to go around. That's for sure. So just to get back, to wrap this up, to get back to this idea of COVID, do you believe it woke us up? Do you believe we're different now and there's more promise in our achieving these moral, ethical, and socially responsible goals we're talking about based on what we learned? Because, you know, as you said, in the past, we have not learned from our mistakes. We keep making the same ones again. Is that going to happen again with COVID? To To be honest, I don't know. The, the the jury is still out. I mean, when I, I know people are tired of wearing masks and all the rest, but I believe it's not time to let off. Given the new variants, this thing is so incredible. I hope that it will become an endemic. That means once a year we get a shot, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. I'm immunocompromised, so I'm boosted up and even take extra protection. But I still think we have more to learn that I still walk around, go to restaurants, and I see all people that are unmasked. And uh, I know it's an inconvenience. You know what? Death and dying and being sick are even more of an inconvenience. So mm. I err on the side of caution. You know, what's great speaking to you, Dr. Mitroff, is to hear someone who comes from a nexus of engineering and philosophy, and you can bring to bear the real world and the world of theory and thinking and ethical behavior. And I've just really enjoyed this conversation. You are the author of this book, The Socially Responsible Organization Lessons from COVID. I will include in the show notes to this episode where our listeners can get a copy of that book. But in the meantime, Dr. Ian Mitroff, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. The thing I enjoy the most is that when it becomes a conversation and you ask me stuff that pushes me out of my comfort zone, I really mean that. And thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate it.
That was my conversation with Dr. Ian Mitroff talking about crisis management and the socially responsible organization. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.